Those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a tune Just an old second Hello and welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And yet again, we have with us... Oh, hello, I'm uh, Mike Mason. Hello. Yes, line editor of Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Mr. Mike Mason is with us once more, and this episode we're talking about the 1973 British horror classic, The Wicker Man. But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on? And if you're tuned into Seclo 105.5, as we all are, no doubt you'll hear an episode. Will they hear something, Scott? Um, well, it's a what radio station. I'd like, to, I'd like to think they'd hear something if they tuned into it. But yes, it's a local radio station in Milton Keynes, and I was interviewed the other day for a segment on basically what people's passions are, what they do creatively. Yes. I... What <laughs> it sounds like a, a dark insight into it the is. mind of Dorwood. Oh, is it late-night radio? <laughs> But uh, only his episode, right? <laughs> but yes, yeah, I was interviewed by Amanda Jane for about half an hour talking about writing. Oh, uh, when, when's this going out? Is that is a out? very good question. No, it hasn't gone out yet. We're not quite sure when it's, it's being broadcast, but it will be available for streaming on the internet. So I'll share a link as and when it's available. On the subject of stuff that we don't know whether it's going to be out by this point, at the time of recording, given when we're projected to launch this, hopefully my first of the actual play for Intersection should be up now with Into the Darkness. Oh, excellent. Really looking forward to starting that again. It's been a while since I've played it. We'll put a link to that on the show notes. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word of the week is unhallowed. It's an adjective. One, not hallowed. No shit, Sherlock. Or consecrated. Two, impious or unholy. Three, wicked or sinful, immoral. And once again, we have a word that has almost entirely religious connotations that Lovecraft uses in pretty much an entirely secular context. This is pure Lovecraft. I think, once again, he likes the sound of the word, is evocative, but I'm not sure that his use of it is very precise. Even if we're looking at it from the point of view of immoral, can any of you think of examples of when morality really pays an example in, in Lovecraft's fiction? Do you think, though, apart from liking the, the sound of the word or the, the way it looks, do you think he is actively subverting it? Do you think that this is mm. a point he's trying to make? He is subverting these religious terms? He does like to focus on like, the anti-religion, really, or the negative words associated with religion. Unhallowed rather than hallowed. Indeed. Mm. I think it appears, if I'm right, 21 times off of, of memory... You've got a very accurate memory there. <laughs> oh, that's good. Huh? I've really got it written down here. Again, another one of these words that we don't necessarily think of as being a, a juicy Lovecraftian adjective, but which is used a hell of a lot more than the ones we do think of as, as common logical Lovecraftian adjectives. 
Well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word unhallowed in his writings. From Herbert West, Reanimator. The laboratory was in a sub-cellar, secretly constructed by imported workmen, and contained a huge incinerator for the quiet and complete disposal of such bodies or fragments and synthetic mockeries of bodies as might remain from the morbid experiments and unhallowed amusements of their owner. And from the rats in the walls. Here cosmic sin had entered, and festered by unhallowed rites had commenced the grinning march of death that was to rot us all to fungus abnormalities too hideous for the grave's holding. And from the call of Cthulhu. Johansson, thank God, did not know quite all, even though he saw the city and the thing. But I shall never sleep calmly again when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and space, and of those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars which dream beneath the sea, known and favoured by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them on the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and air. And from the colour out of space. For the terror had not faded with the silhouette, and in a fearsome instant of deeper darkness the watchers saw wriggling at that treetop height a thousand tiny points of faint and unhallowed radiance, tipping each bough like the fire of St Elmo, or the flames that came down on the apostles' heads at Pentecost. This is Sergeant Howie. A policeman from the mainland who will be spending the night with us. This is my daughter, Willow. Good evening. Show the sergeant to his room. Much has been said of the strumpets of yore. Of wenches and baldy house queens by the score. But I sing of the baggage that we all adore. The landlord's daughter, you'll never love another. The kind of girl to take home to your mother. And now, this week's main topic, The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man was made in 1972 by British Lion Studios. It was written by Anthony Schaefer, directed by Robin Hardy, and uh, starred a, a fantastic cast including Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward. It then suffered very, very badly. It started out being filmed as a main feature, but there was a change of management at British Lion Studios and they decided that they didn't like it. So they cut it down and released it as a B feature behind Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. It was so mistreated that the original negatives to the uh, theatrical release were destroyed in error, making it very hard subsequently to actually to get a restored and original version together. I mean, there were a couple of attempts to do this. In the 1970s, uh, late 70s, a distributor in the US actually managed to do so, put together a cut, was about to send it all around the US, and then there was a legal battle over who actually had the distribution rights. Another company won the rights to it, got hold of that restored copy, and then promptly lost it again. I mean, this film is just cursed. Well, eventually, in uh, in the early 2000s, 
using segments from a print in the possession of famous film director Roger Corman, they were able to put together what they call the final cut. And actually that was re-released in the early 2000s is, you know, the copy you're most likely to find today, I guess. So the one I saw was about an hour and 33 minutes. So that was the final yeah. cut. Yeah, if, it's, if um, it's, 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 it says pretty clearly in the title, the Wicker Man, the final cut. And certainly that's the one you would find on Amazon or if you want to buy the DVD, you should be able to find that pretty easily. Yeah, I think the final cut is more like about an hour and 40, hour and 42 minutes, something like that. They do love their divinity lessons. But they, they are, are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. Now let's look at the story of The Wicker Man. Listeners should know that we're going to spoil the hell out of The Wicker Man. So if you haven't seen it, I recommend watching it before we talk about it, but it's up to you. We start by seeing Sergeant Neil Howie, played by Edward Woodward, at work in the Highlands, learning quickly that he's a devout Christian, which makes him the subject of his colleagues' mockery. One point of particular ridicule is the fact that, despite having been engaged for two years, Howie has not slept with his fiancée, but is saving himself for marriage. Aww. And then an anonymous letter arrives at the police station, sent from the Hebridean island of Summer Isle. The author asks for help in finding a missing girl by the name of Rowan Morrison, whose disappearance is being apparently ignored by the locals. From the conversation between Harry and his colleague, we learn that Summer Isle is a remote and secretive place, but quite famous for its produce, particularly its apples. Howie travels to Summer Isle by seaplane. You know, we don't get enough of that these days. Yeah. Uh, policemen yeah. that are multitask and multi-trained <laughs> like that. Put points into flying as well. Yeah. And the first people he encounters, a group of old men loitering around the harbour, claim not to have heard of Rowan Morrison. So moving on to the sweet shop, run by the woman identified in the letter as Rowan's mother, Howie is told by Mrs Morrison that she only has one daughter, called May. Then, when Howie has the opportunity to speak to May alone, she reveals that Rowan exists, but that she is a hare that lives out in the fields. Getting nowhere with this, it becomes obvious that Howie is going to have to stay on Summer Isle overnight. He takes a room at the Green Man Inn, where he's shocked by the locals and their behaviour. They're singing a bawdy song in praise of the landlord's daughter, Willa McGregor, played by Britt Eklund. While he's in the bar, Harry notices a series of photographs taken at the annual Harvest Festival, each featuring that year's May Queen. However, the photograph for the previous year, 1972, is missing. The landlord, Alda McGregor, played by Lindsay Kemp, tells Harry that it was broken. And although Harry later asks the chemist who took the photograph whether the negative still exists, the chemist tells him no. Howie goes out for a walk and is shocked to discover an orgy taking place on the village green. Shocked? What the hell? <laughs> that is quite <laughs> strange, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, you, you don't even get that in New Bradwell. He sees other evidence that the sexual morality of Summer Isle is very different from that on the mainland. That evening, the musicians in the inn play while Willow takes the virginity of a young man at the behest of Lord Summer Isle, played by none other than Christopher Lee. Or as we better know him, Saruman. I thought you were going to say Dracula. <laughs> Count Dooku. Uh, <laughs> the following morning, 
how he visits the local school and speaks to some of the children. He notices some of them, first of all, dancing around the maypole. And when he goes in and listens to a lesson that's being given by the local school teacher, he hears her tell the children all about the symbolism of the maypole and the fact that it's a, a phallic symbol. But Howie, of course, is outraged at this, being a, a good sexually repressed Christian. He demands to know what has happened to Rowan Morrison, but the children and the teacher tell him that they've never even heard of her. More enraged, the scene continues with Harry searching the schoolroom and finding the register, of course, with Rowan Morrison's name in it. He tells the teacher and the students that they're all liars, and uh, the teacher takes him outside and explains that Rowan is dead, but that when somebody dies... Those on the island consider the person not to exist anymore since they have returned to nature. And there's a scene here in the desk that he opens up, Rowan's desk, and there's just a beetle tied by a piece of cotton thread to a pin stuck into the bottom of the desk. The girl next to him says it's going round and round and round. Oh, yes. A little old beetle goes round and round, always the same way, you see, until it ends up right up tight to the nail. Poor old thing. <laughs> Poor old thing. And why in God's name do you do it, girl? Doesn't this seem rather symbolic of how his fate? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. yes. It's a precursor to yeah. uh, foreshadowing well, that. Well, yeah. I think it's more than symbolism. I mean, if you play around with the idea that one of the practices in witchcraft is sympathetic magic, that this is almost like a ritual entrapment of Howie, mm. that you know, Howie is, is twinned with the beetle and by trapping him on the pin like that, you know, this is the townspeople trapping him on his path to doom. Mm-hmm. Returning to the sweet shop, Howie discovers Mrs. Morrison curing May's sore throat by putting a frog in her mouth. He demands to know where Rowan's body is. Mrs. Morrison says that she's buried in the now deconsecrated churchyard. Howie finds the grave with a Rowan tree growing on it, decorated with Rowan's umbilical cord. After being told he needs permission to exhume the body, Howie sets off to see Lord Summerisle. He travels there through some rather picturesque landscape on a horse-drawn cart, passes through orchards in bloom, and he witnesses a group of young girls, naked, dancing around in a stone circle and leaping over a fire while singing. At this point, we are actually introduced to Lord Summerisle, as is Sergeant Howie, who explains the history of the island. The Lord's grandfather, a Victorian scientist, came to Summer Isle believing that the combination of volcanic soil and the warmth of the Gulf Stream would make it fertile, and so he developed new strains of crops suited to these conditions. To convince the local populace to work for him, Lord Summer Isle's grandfather reintroduced paganism to the island, driving away the local priests. What began as expedience has now become genuine belief. This baffles and angers the deeply Christian Howie. Now, having been given permission to exhume the body by Lord Summerisle, Howie returns to Rowan Morrison's grave. When her coffin is opened, however, he finds the body of a hare. Obviously, this pisses Howie off. He storms back to Lord Summerisle's home, where he throws the hare at his feet and states that he believes that Rowan was sacrificed in some hideous pagan rite. Convinced the town is conspiring against him, that night, Harry breaks into the chemist's shop and he searches the darkroom in the back and finds a negatives from the 1972 Harvest Festival, the missing photo from the pub. They reveal that Rowan Morrison was in fact the May Queen for, of that year 
and significantly that the harvest had failed that year, unlike previous ones. So we put points in flying, piloting and photography. Well, he does, in fact, develop the photograph from the negative. Yeah. Yes, he's he's an all-rounded investigator with with a great backstory, which we'll come back to later. (laughs) Yeah, and he's got no problems about breaking in as well. Really law-abiding policeman there, too. (laughs) He's had enough by this point. Yeah. (laughs) This revelation convinces Howie that Rowan is probably still alive kept prisoner as a sacrifice for the following day's May Day celebrations to guarantee a bountiful crop. Back at the Green Man, Howie retires to bed. In the next room, a naked willow, the landlord's daughter, performs a song and dance designed to entice Howie into her bedroom. Is it, well, is it a song and dance or is she actually casting a spell? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a good question. I mean, it does seem to be very, very ritualised, the way that she's moving rhythmically and pounding on mm. the wall. And the people downstairs can hear it and join in the they're, rhythm a bit as well. Absolutely. They? They, they're, yeah. they're all participating, adding their magic points. Yeah. Well, he almost succumbs. And I'd kind of misremembered this. I thought he did succumb to it. But ultimately, he resists. But it's, you can see it's a real struggle for him. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you do, Matt? <laughs> okay, moving on. Moving on. Well, I, I, I think this is one of the most iconic scenes out of The Wicker Man as well. I think anyone who saw it when they were a young adult or a teenager, this is the scene that they imprinted upon. I do remember a, a film award ceremony years ago where Jonathan Ross was the presenter and Britt Eklund was one of the guests. He, t- he basically said, and thank you for getting through, uh, me through my uh, teenage years with The Wicker Man. <laughs> That's pretty much all he said. <laughs> So early the following morning, Howie gets up and resolves to head back to the mainland and get reinforcements to deal with the inevitable sacrifice. However, when he gets rowed out to a seaplane, he discovers that it's been sabotaged and won't start. So instead, he decides that it's all down to him and he's got to save Rowan by himself. If he wasn't angry before, he certainly is now. <laughs> well, he's uh, angry because the keeper's like, no, sorry, the plane at work. The plane at work, no, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I don't care about your rolling. <laughs> yeah. I put 70 points into pilot and I get one scene? Yeah. <laughs> you should have put Come some on. points in mechanical repair, mate. <laughs> so basically, completely livid, he goes door to door, building to building, to search every single one to find where they're keeping Rowan Morrison. Even if there's nobody in, that's not going to stop him now. He kicks down the doors mm. and gets inside and looks around, even walking in on a woman in a bathtub. Well, not just any woman, Ingrid Pitt. Ingrid Pitt, of all people. But obviously, as he goes through the houses, he sees more heathen or pagan imagery and encounters a few pranks along the way. He also overhears Lord Summerisle telling the other islanders that they will parade out along the shore onto the site where they will perform their sacrifice. Frustrated, as if he wasn't already, Howie returns to the Green Man to rest for a short while. As he lies in bed, he hears Alder and Willow McGregor whispering outside his room, plotting to render him unconscious. He opens his eyes and is horrified to discover a hand of glory beside his bed. You know, if he just stayed unconscious, the rest of the film, would he would have probably survived. Do you want to say <laughs> what that hand of glory was, Matt? The hand of glory is, I believe it's the right hand? Um, or well, it, it's basically it, one of the hands of a corpse that's been dismembered and turned into, effectively, five candles. They really really brighten up the room. Yeah, a traditional Hand of Glory is supposed to be made of the hand of a murderer. But in this case, there's almost a throwaway bit. I, I, I didn't notice. I've seen The Wicker Man a dozen times, and I did not notice until this viewing that in pretty much the previous scene when he's going around searching the place, he goes into the funeral parlour and he opens up a coffin and finds a body inside. And the body is missing the right hand. There's a yes, bandaged stump. Nice foreshadow to the uh, Hand of Glory. 
Taking the iron stand from the Hand of Glory, how he sneaks into the room where Alder McGregor, the barman, is changing for the parade and knocks him out. How he steals the punch costume and wears it to hide his identity. Knock him out, take the uniforms. Can't go wrong with that. <laughs> Can't go wrong. How he then hurries off and joins the parade, where all the islanders are dressed in animal masks and strange costumes. Lord Samurai himself has taken on the ritual role of the teaser, which is this hermaphroditic figure, dressed in, in, in women's clothing and a long black wig. Everyone sings and dances as they make their way down the coast. As they make their way through the standing stones, uh, a group of swordsmen gather and effectively make a star, a sun shape out of the swords. A star of David shape. Star of David yeah. shape, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, not and quite an elder sign. Not so. quite an elder sign, yeah. but near enough. And uh, everyone in the procession has to uh, bounce their head through this uh, gathering of swords in case, uh, in case one of their heads gets chopped off. They go through this ritualised fake beheading and then uh, offer casks of beer to the god of the sea. The procession stops at the base of the cliff. At this point, Harry spots Rowan Morrison held prisoner by one of the villagers and runs up to release her. Freed from her bonds, Rowan leads Harry through a sea cave as they are pursued by the mob. When the two emerge from the other side, atop of the cliff, they find Lord Summerisle, who's done a miraculously quick change of costume, by mm. the way, and a few other islanders waiting for them. Rowan, you think, scared... Gonna be saying, help me, help me, help me. No, runs over to them and happily asks if she did it all right. It's a trap! <laughs> more and more of the islanders arrive from below and Lord Summerisle explains, in a kind of supervillain to the to Bond, Lord Summerisle explains to Howie that he has been lured here with the false story of Rowan's disappearance. Whoa! Every detail of the story was crafted to bring Howie to this place and time. And it wasn't just any policeman, it was specifically him. Oh, they, yeah. He says very carefully, though, we've done our research and we know all about you. Painstaking ah. research, yes. It's that line of, uh, we've controlled your every thought and action since you've arrived. Say <laughs> very, oh, yeah. completely yeah. hamming it up Bond villain style. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to deliver a line like that if you don't have a beard to stroke at the same time. I wonder if it was this performance that got him the role of Scaramanga in Man with a Golden Gun. <laughs> As Howie suspected, the crops did fail the previous year, and Lord Sumrile, to compensate this, has planned a sacrifice to placate the sun god and the goddess of the fields. The sacrifice has to be the right kind of person. He says that a child is acceptable, but not as acceptable as the right kind of adult. Someone who came at their own free will, with the authority of a king, but as a fool and as a virgin. And thus, Harry, who was the fool, becomes the king for a day. And the local women ritually awash and anoint him, helping him into ceremonial robes. It is at this point that Lord Summerisle tells him that it is time for his appointment with the Wicker Man. The first reference to the, uh, the title of the film as well, throughout the whole thing. So, Honor, are you telling me if he had given in and slept with Britt Eklund... A, he'd have slept with Brett Eklund and they wouldn't have killed him. Exactly, it was a yeah, test. Yeah, yeah. It was a test to test whether he was a virgin and whether he would, you know. I, I, I have seen the point made online that this is almost uh, the flip side of the morality of slasher movies. In that, yeah. you know, if you're a protagonist in a slasher movie or a character in a slasher movie and you have sex during the course of the film, you'll die for it. In this, he dies because he doesn't. Can't win. <laughs> How he tries to convince those around him that this sacrifice is doomed to failure that God struck down the island's crops because of their heresy. 
He proclaims that if this year's crops fail, next time they will have to sacrifice Lord Summerisle himself. And I think that's probably the most powerful moment of the film for me, is that moment when thinking, crap, what is going to happen next year? Yeah. And just that look of him pointing down at Summerisle. Like, you can almost see him gulp as thinking, shit, yeah. <laughs> this although, is wrong a bit. He, although there may be a slight pause, Lord Summerisle retorts with, no, this will work in full confidence. Mm. And obviously the crowd go with him. Yeah, but he sounds more like he's trying to convince himself than anyone else. Oh, of course. If, if only uh, Howie had put a few more points into like fast talk. <laughs> or intimidate. Know, not spend all those points wasting them on pilot. Anyway, so the celebrants lead Howie over the brow of the hill, where he sees a huge, faceless wicker man, built atop a stack of kindling and firewood. The wicker man is hollow, the chambers within filled with animals, except for one, of course, which is, is destined to be put into. How he calls out to God in terror as he is forced within. And I think this is like one of the most powerful bits of the film for me, when he, his performance as he comes over the hill and, and he sees the wicker man is just sheer terror. Of course, it's, you, it's fabulous. you realise the look on Edward Woodward's face is fairly real in the fact that he this is the first time he's actually seen the Wicker Man. But he knows they're not actually going to... No, no, no. <laughs> but in terms <laughs> no, of like looking at the... Right. You know, the, yeah, the, well, uh, you know, the like, It's so a bit like the scene that. in Aliens with John Hurt. You know, although they might kind of know what's going to happen, right. they hadn't quite appreciated the scale and, and you know, how it looked. Yeah. But also, also some of the other fear was real because, I mean, although you know, they, they didn't plan to burn Edward Woodard alive. You know, they were still putting him in this wicker man, they were still setting fire to it and getting it out. And, and uh, you know, it was an uncomfortable and frightening experience for him just going through the filming of it, and not without its risks. Because, I mean, he would have been told that, you know, yeah, we're going to put you in this and we are going to sort of set fire to the, you know, nearby to look as if you're in the flames, and there will be some flames, but we'll get you out before then. But <laughs> accidents yeah. happen. Accidents happen, you know. Yeah. And also, I can only imagine it's at that point that he hears the soundtrack... Which we haven't mentioned yet, Matt. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't. That's the, the real horror there. Oh, no, it's, it's great. The folk music. The folk music. Sorry, oh, we'll yes, talk about this later, guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, at this stage, Lord Summerall does light the pyre, and the fire begins to spread throughout the Wicker Man. Howie prays fervently, singing out the 23rd Psalm amidst the din of frightened goats, sheep and chickens. As the Wicker Man burns, the surrounding islanders sing Summer is a-coming in. The flames eventually consume the structure and as the film closes as dusk falls we see the final shot of the wicker man's head collapsing revealing the red sun setting over the sea what's the matter with you mcgregor do you call that dancing cut some capers man use your platter play the fool that's what you're here for Now you know what's gone on in The Wicker Man, and you've already seen it, because clearly you would have watched the film before you listened to us spoil it, and they're now going to talk about it. I'm confused. Where, where were the bees? I didn't get that. <laughs> Come on, bees! We don't, that that film doesn't exist. The, 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 the Nicolas Cage remake of The, of the Wicker Man does not exist. We don't talk okay. about Is it. Is it an alternative d- universe? Yes, yeah, so it just doesn't exist. Right. Don't watch it. Is that like in the it. universe in Discovery? Yeah. It's in the, flip, in, the, in the dark side. Okay. So we're not only spoiling currently a 1773 film, spoiling a current sci-fi if you haven't watched it yet. It's not spoiling. It's, it's, that's a, you know, that's a teaser. Teaser. 
I think it's important to kind of note Christopher Lee's role in terms of getting the film made and its and its notoriety thereafter. What do, what do you say, Scott? Lee stated many times that he thought the role of Lord Summerisle was the greatest one that he'd ever played. As a result, I, he, he really championed this film. The film was cut to ribbons by the studio. It was done so without the knowledge of anyone involved with the production. Lee fought later to you know, help with the restoration. Even in those early days when it was going out as a B feature and British Lion were trying to you know, shove it under the carpet, he did things like he, he went out and bought cinema tickets and gave them to uh, cinema critics and just sort of said, yeah, I know this isn't the kind of thing you'd normally see, go and see it. One of the really bizarre points I'm reading here that you've uh, gathered in your research, Scott, is that the original negatives and unused footage ended up as landfill used in the construction of the M3 motorway. What yeah. the hell? Yeah, I, because apparently what British Lion used to do was, I mean, th- th- this is fairly standard practice, that you know, there was an awful lot of waste footage that was shot, you know, um, uh, offcuts that were never going to be used for anything else, uh, spoiled uh, footage. They had a pickup service that came in once a week and just gathered all this stuff and would take it out and, and dispose of it. And apparently there was some mistake and they just gathered up the negatives and, and unused footage from the Wicker Man. And then, yeah, it just all got used in landfill. This does make me wonder, then, if we can do a modern-day take on the stone tape, if we can go to the M3 and then suddenly revive these old pieces of footage. So, well, so you're going to lie there in the middle of a motorway, just lying there with your head on the ground, trying to hear the chanting. <laughs> one day, when they dig up that road, when we're all flying around in hovercrafts, and they don't need roads anymore, and they dig that up, and there's all these treasures underneath, old Atari games, Wicker Man, and some like games, layers cer- of, uh... certain, certain games workshop mer- merchandise, so I allegedly hear. history. <laughs> Lord Lucan. The uh, the book Inside the Wicker Man by uh, Alan Brown is uh, it's pretty much essential reading if, if you're particularly interested in the film. Uh, he interviews pretty much everyone involved, whether it's Schaffer, Hardy, Woodward, Lee, Peter Snell and many others. And, and what's quite interesting is that whenever you read within this book and you see interviews with these uh, different people involved in the film, they pretty much all contradict one another. One will say one thing and the other say, no, that, that, that never happened. It's very, very interesting. The other, the other way, if you want to watch it, Mark Commode, uh, made a documentary some years ago about The Wicker Man and the whole documentary is uh, is available on YouTube, I believe. From the interviews in that book, the one thing that comes through, though, is that almost no one involved with the production really seemed to like Robin Hardy's work very much. They seemed to like him fine as a person. He and, and Anthony Schaefer had come from this background of making uh, commercials and this was his first feature film. And the people he worked with thought that he was maybe workmanlike and pedestrian at best. Britt Eklund certainly wasn't happy with the film, I believe. Apparently she was dubbed in. There did seem to be, I mean, as a master of the accents myself, as, as you well know, uh, there did seem to be, even to me, there did seem to be some fairly dodgy accents um, oh, yeah. in, in the film. Oh, Ingrid Pitt, for example, in her few scenes in there, I'm, she, she, she's Polish, and she did not even attempt to do an accent. Britt Eklund didn't speak in the film, and for certainly for the, um, as I would call the spell scene, the dance scene, she had a body double as well. So yeah. Not her. Well, it is from the it front, is. but not from the back. I, apparently, she was very unhappy with the way that her body looked at the time and didn't want, uh, didn't want her ass filmed, basically. She was happy to be filmed from the waist up, but from the waist down, she, she didn't want to. So apparently what happened, and again, you know, if you read Inside the Wicker Man, there are like five different versions of this story. But apparently some people involved with the production went out to a strip club and basically hired a stripper to come along and act as her stunt ass for those scenes. 
that would explain how she was so flexible, admittedly, with uh, while she was pounding up against that door. Because I thought that's that's definitely got some points in decks there. <laughs> this I is think... a very strange discussion, I have to say. This well, moving on now. from uh, yeah. uh, Rebecca's <laughs> ass, we talked about the music very, very briefly. I mean, Robin Hardy, whilst during the filming, did tell all the crew and cast that, yeah, we are filming a musical. And I think music plays a very vital and important role in the film. Well, we learned earlier that Scott effectively treats this film as a uh, version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, singing along at every opportunity he can. Absolutely. I I own two copies of the soundtrack album because they did two different versions. One which was extracted from the film soundtrack and another which was re-recordings afterwards. And yeah, I I love that. Yeah, I have have the soundtrack as well and and I actually went to sing along a Wicker Man. (laughs) Oh, did you indeed? Indeed, yeah. Fantastic. Who who, who did you set fire to at the end? Uh, There was a bit of an argument we just we didn't quite get there but uh sorry was... I, as, as an aside am i the only one who's ever been to a belt-in celebration where they have burnt a wicker man no i have oh, been as well guys. i've been to oh, one right. some wicked acquaintances of mine in milton Keynes many years ago held a built-in celebration in this terraced house in the, the patioed back garden of it the part of the celebration was burning this wicker man and they put little offerings nothing alive in there but little offerings it was so spinal tap because this was the, a miniature one was absolutely it? i mean but, you know they didn't have the resources to build a proper size one so this thing was literally a foot tall so it's more like the wicker infant then <laughs> yes <laughs> interesting well the, the music was um they wanted effectively traditional folk music but obviously it needed to be specific to the film so rather than go and hunt out traditional songs what they they, they hired paul giovanni and the band magnet paul giovanni composed and wrote the lyrics and music and then himself and magnet performed the pieces for the film but they also reworked a few traditional pieces i mean oh yes they they took yeah certainly like summer is a coming in which anthony schaefer actually wrote some uh, modern lyrics to because it's in in old english and it's absolutely incomprehensible otherwise that corn rigs and barley rigs song is is actually a rabbi burns yes yes so they've become songs in their own right you know they're not just associated with the wicker man now although there's a strong association there is uh and they've been re-recorded by other artists down the years um david the bard particularly has recorded gently johnny and a few other tracks yeah so if you do like folk music of which i think there's two people in this room, perhaps. <laughs> all right, all right, thinking people love folk music. Exactly. There's two what? of us in the room who right-mindedly like folk music. Uh, would suggest to go and seek out the soundtrack and the uh, various cover versions. It's great stuff. I think our singing's better. Even I'm not sure. I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, what was that about? They say about damning praise. Yeah. <laughs> The film was shot entirely around the west coast of Scotland, which is pretty unusual for a film to be made entirely outside of a studio, because yeah, there isn't absolutely no studio scenes whatsoever. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, they, they wandered around all over the place just trying to find the right places. And again, if you read Inside the Wicker Man, with certain scenes, you know, they'll ask one person, oh, you know, where was this shot? And they'll give a specific location. And they'll ask the next person, oh, no, I remember it clearly. It was shot here. And yeah, no two people can agree about any detail of this bloody film. Of course, the film is supposed to be set at the start of summer, but they started filming in winter, so they were having to glue blossom to trees to make it look summery when they started filming. My favourite bit of trivia related to that is the fact that for the outdoor scenes, they had to put ice cubes inside their mouths to stop their breath showing up when they spoke. The film is titled Anthony Schaffer's Wicker Man, and it's pretty unusual, certainly in those days, for the writers to get top billing like that. Schaffer had had uh, large success with his play Sleuth, and uh, had also recently written Frenzy for Alfred Hitchcock in 1972. 
he didn't like the image of the Wicker Man being used on the poster, and I very much agree with that. Much like Planet of the Apes, when the key final scene is used as the title screen on the DVD, there are constantly new generations of people coming through that haven't seen these things. But, but I mean, is there ever a statute of limitations on spoilers like this? Yeah. I, mean, I, th- I, I think to, you know, I mean, I, for me, the, the classic example is uh, the film Soylent Green. The only thing people ever remember about that film these days is the line, Soylent Green as people. That is the big twist, the big revelation Absolutely. at the end of the film. And yeah. if, if you ever hear anything about the film, that's the one thing you'll know. I find quite amusing that you're willing to spoil an up-to-date, <laughs> an up-to-date sci-fi <laughs> programme, but you won't spoil Planet of the it's not a classic film, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it never I mean, I just kind of, I mean, I've never, I mean, I don't think any of us ever saw the film The Wicker Man before we'd seen the poster or the no. the image of The Wicker Actually, Man. I saw the film unspoiled in the late 80s. Some pagan friends of mine, uh, neo-pagan friends, put it on a DVD player around their house and a whole bunch I'm of people watched it. They, 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 oh, seriously, they were. They spent ages yep. uh, trying to get me involved with the coven. I didn't really know anything about it. And one thing I will say, Watching The Wicker Man with a group of pagans or Wiccans <laughs> is a very, very different experience very than watching it with most audiences. Absolutely, you, yes. You so can tell who they're rooting for. But yes, yeah, so they're, they're slightly rooting for a different group of people than than your average watcher, I guess. Just to touch base on the uh, on the cover image, though, the latest edition of, of The Wicker Man that was it's been released, and the one that's mainly to be found there is the final cut version. And you'll note that The Wicker Man doesn't feature or mm. features prominently on that you see that it's a kind of a montage of images from the film redrawn or it's the sun god symbol it's certainly on the front cover of the paperback because i've got the old 70s edition that was the novelization of the film which has that on the front cover what we were talking about before with um this is beloved by neo-pagans i think the the sort of research that uh, schaefer and 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 robin hardy put into this the very even-handed approach all right you know the the People of Summer are they're luring him there under false pretenses, they're sacrificing him. But they are doing it all out of deeply held faith. Everything does seem to be, you know, sympathetic and understandable. Well, even even when presented with the final reality of his situation, they're not unkind to Howie in, no. in that sense. They, they don't treat him cruelly. Mm. You know, they do honour him. And, and even Summerall says, you know, you, uh, when, when Howie kind of talks about, you know, I, you know, I believe in the life everlasting and the resurrection. And Summerall retorts by saying, well, it's good that you believe these things because then we bestow upon you a rare honour, a martyr's death. Yes. So, it, it, which is a wonderful line. But it, again, it doesn't detract from Howie's faith in any way. No, and, and Schaefer always saw these as a being fundamentally about a conflict between faiths. And this is something I'll come back to a little later, because Schaefer did actually write a treatment for a sequel, and that, you know, that's writ large all over his, his treatment. I mean, one of the reasons that you know, Wiccans, neo-pagans, heathens, etc., you know, quite like the Wicker Man, apart from kind of espousing a certain word, worldview uh, and belief system, is that it does utilise what are, you know, traditional uh, folkloric uh, activities that can be found in England today, such as in Cornwall, Padstow, they have an obihos, and, uh, which moves to the ground, tupping young women uh, while they sing, and, uh, and, you know, the whole kind of mythology, the Green Man, which is what the pub is named after, and so on. Shaffer was... 
uh, and indeed Hardy were very clear to kind of bring in some real traditions within the film to a certain extent. And Hardy in particular had been researching uh, occult beliefs and mythologies for some time and paid particular interest to uh, Fraser's Golden Bough uh, book, which is all about the myth of the uh, ritual of the rebirth of the king, effectively. And and that was an, certainly uh, drew on that as inspiration in terms of approaching the film and moving that forward. Just going back for a moment to what you were saying about Padstow, have any of you been to the May Day celebrations at Padstow? No. I went about 25 years ago, and I swear it is like being in a reenactment of The Wicker Man. Um, you know, masks the, the mask, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. masks, costumes, people singing the whole time, albeit you know, a very different song, the Padstow song. But yeah, Obios, you know, looking exactly like Obios in, in The Wicker Man, going through the crowd, tapping all these women. The fact that it's by the sea and the harbour and everything like that, it really is like being smack in the middle of The Wicker Man. Are they one policeman down every year? <laughs> <laughs> they are traditionalists, Matt. <laughs> The idea that ancient Celts used wicker men came from a single reference in Julius Caesar's The Commentary on the Gaelic War. And, yeah, I mean, that led to a you know, very famous drawing of uh, this huge wicker man, which I've actually used as an illustration on blasphemistomes.com before, but I, I will almost certainly put on the, the website again. It was that one image that Anthony Schaefer saw and thought, yeah, the, the, this is what we've got to do. The traditional wicker man that they've got in that picture has a face on it. Initially, the idea when they constructed the Wicker Man for the film was that they were going to put a face on. What they were going to do was, was basically get huge sunflowers and use those for the eyes. Then they experimented with that and thought it looked a bit too friendly. And so they, 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 <laughs> yeah, they, they took the, the flowers out and left it as this blank face and suddenly thought, oh, that looks really fucking scary. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't put the flowers on because it does look a hell of a lot more menacing without it. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Of course, Julius Caesar was in no way biased in terms of his <laughs> representation of the, uh, the Britons and so on. No, very even-handed. Sure they all had it in for him. Can I do anything for you, Sergeant? Oh, I doubt it. Seeing it all raving mad. Now let's take a look at the sequels, remakes and sources. Yeah, let's get this out of the way. Acknowledge the fact that, yes, it was remade by Neil Laboot in, uh, when was it, 2006? Stars Nicolas Cage and is one of the worst reviewed films of all times. I've seen clips of it, I've seen the trailer, and I just refuse to immerse myself any more in it. Have any of us actually seen it? I've seen most of it. I'm thinking that we need to subject him to it, because, you know, you'll come out the other side and think, actually, this one half bad. Oh, fuck off. Oh, you're joking. (laughs) I went to the cinema the day it was released. Oh, wow. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm like Scott, I'm a massive Wicker Man fan, and, and I knew it would be bad, but I kind of felt it, I had to kind of, just, just in case there was, you know, something cool or a nice little referential, not back to the original. Oh, no. <laughs> no, a complete oh, oh, disaster. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, oh Lord. Lord. No. <laughs> We need to do a dubbing, a kind of a, a mashup of that with leading Scott over the hill and then they're just being a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I mean, it, has, I mean it, it follows the story to some degree, but the veers sharply away with a completely kind of different kind of setup. And, and you know, it ends the same way, sort of, but not really. And it's just, uh, let's not even bother. Let's just look, don't, dear listener, don't bother <laughs> just don't bother watching it <laughs> we could spend far more time talking about interesting things 
One interesting thing we can talk about is I didn't realise until comparatively recently that The Wicker Man is based on a novel. Except it's not. There was this novel called Ritual by David Pinner that was published in 1967. Anthony Schaefer, Robin Hardy and Christopher Lee had all read it and decided they wanted to make a film version of it and they actually bought the rights. It does certainly have a lot of parallels with The Wicker Man and you can see perhaps where some of the ideas came from. It is about a policeman who goes off to a seaside village but in Cornwall, not in Scotland, to investigate the murder of a child. While he's there he encounters a lot of very eccentric locals and you know, gradually becomes aware that they follow perhaps older traditions there that there are hints of witchcraft that you know, certainly towards the end there is a big pagan celebration that perhaps you know owes a little bit to you know say padstow celebration and there are little bits in that relate like uh, you know at some point they do smash open some barrels of beer as an offering to the god of the sea one memorable bit there is a a local seductress young woman who uh, is in the room next to the the policeman's and does perform some kind of ritual through the wall to try to seduce him the ending is nothing like it but the biggest difference is the tone i this book is written in a very sort of breathless overexcited campy style a lot of the actions in there a lot of the scenes are done more for absurd humor than anything else quite jarringly so the writing i think is actually pretty awful in most places if you filmed that, the end result wouldn't look anything like The Wicker Man. It would look like a cross between a Dario Argento film and a carry-on film. That sounds quite good. <laughs> <laughs> carry-on horror. Yeah, carry-on stabbing. But in terms of an actual book of The Wicker Man, it was Robin Hardy himself who actually wrote a novelisation about 1978, which fills in a few details and gives a little bit of background to uh, to the story in terms of the the plot and narrative yeah i mean i read his follow-up book called cowboys for christ which is in fact the plot for the the wicker tree follow-on film which we'll talk about in a moment but thoroughly enjoyed enjoyed the story it's not it's not um it's not the best written book i've ever read but it's certainly you know certainly not the worst and then in the 90s Schaffer wrote a script for a sequel which was never filmed it's set immediately after the first film when the ritual has failed and how he has escaped. What? How did that happen? But the disruption to the ritual has caused everyone to age by 15 years. This sounds a very curious setup oh, for a, it, a film. It is it's really weird. Um, the entire treatment, uh, about 20 pages worth, is published as an appendix uh, to Inside the Wicker Man. And dear God, am I glad it didn't get made. Obviously, the, <laughs> you know, the out-of-story uh, uh, reason why everyone has aged 15 years was because he was writing this 15 years later and wanted to, to follow on directly after the events of the first film. Again, the tone is really quite surprisingly campy. The little bits of dialogue that he's got written in there are bizarre. It starts off with um, basically a, an aircraft full of police officers turning up at just the right moment to follow up Howie and rescuing him from the Wicker Man. This, you know, as, as you mentioned, disrupts the ritual. Everyone ages. Howie is badly burnt. They take him back to hospital and he, he recovers. But then he gets sort of taunting letters from Lord Summer Isle and decides to go back. 
Summer Isle baits him into this sort of ritualistic content about my god is bigger than your god, and the two of them had this faith showdown between them. And at the same time, how he is encountering all these these things out of folklore, uh, including you know witches riding broomsticks and the lantern worm. Part of the climax is is how he sort of embodying Saint George, uh, going along and fighting you know this dragon, fighting the dragon in the kitchen sink from the sound of it. <laughs> What the hell? Yeah, that, that was pretty much my reaction. There is a, a follow-on film to The Wicker Man. It isn't a sequel. It, it certainly isn't a direct sequel. It's a companion piece, a sister film, if you will, that was made in 2011 by Robin Hardy and based on the book I mentioned earlier, Cowboys for Christ. It's again set in Scotland, however, on the mainland. follows pretty much a very, very similar story, mm. although it's slightly inverted in that this time what we have is two American Texans who are effectively born-again Christians who are coming to Scotland to bring the word of the Lord, the, you know, to bring the, to bring the good news to the Scottish people who have kind of lost their way and maybe lost their, lost their Christianity, perhaps. And although it isn't a sequel, there is a little cameo by you know, a, a rather elderly and infirm Christopher Lee, who may or may not be playing Lord Summer Isle. If you don't like the film, it, that one scene in itself is quite nice as a, as a touching piece with uh, Christopher Lee. But I quite enjoyed the film. I quite like it. It's not, yeah. it's not by any way near as good as The Wicker Man. But if you like watching films about cults and sacrifices, it ain't bad. Well, I'm looking forward to, uh, I don't know when it's going to be ready, but apparently Alton Towers, never mind your Pirates of the Caribbean and your Oblivion and all that, they're going to have a Wicker Man ride. I mean, I know. It's, what? it's just what? Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty much my reaction. Take the flame inside you, burn and burn the lay. Fire, sleep, and fire, please, and make the baby stay. Now let's take a look at what we can take from the Wicker Man as inspiration for our gaming. I think that there is such a, an iconic template in this film that could be applied to so many variations of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, which is just this idea of this isolated community with its own very idiosyncratic and old and, and perhaps slightly repellent practices existing outside normal society. And what happens when people from outside find themselves in the midst of it? It wasn't until I was thinking about this for the, the script that it occurred to me how much it reminded me in that respect of the Shadow of Innsmouth. You mean they've got a wicker fish just beyond uh, Devil's Reef? <laughs> Salmon they do of wear knowledge. like a fish costume. Salmon of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. But also it seems to be an object lesson in how to play NPCs as well. Our main character, Howie, the policeman, is, is constantly kind of running up against people and asking people questions. And sometimes they're trying to deceive him or lie to, or just, just hold back information from him. But sometimes they're quite forthcoming with information. But mm. he's like, what's he going to do with it? He's like, he's banging his head on the wall, really. Well, I, and, and also the fact that, you know, they, they're telling him what they believe, mm. but that isn't necessarily a frame of reference that he understands. That whole thing about there is no Rowan Morrison. You know, she, she's dead. She doesn't exist anymore. And he, and he very quickly encounters the school teacher teaching clearly pagan beliefs to the children. It's all very strange. But as a player of the character, how would you confront that? Because they're not concealing the fact, if you like, that they're a cult. They're almost quite open about it. The, the school teacher in particular 
just winds me up something chronic that it's like in a manner of speaking <laughs> is it a grave a graveyard or consecrated ground if and you think oh for god's sake woman give a straight answer you're not a politician well i, I, I don't know you remind me of so many arguments that i've had myself and the way that i present myself in arguments sometimes oh, i, I can wanna, identify with her perfectly if you're trying to obfuscate this outsider from revealing the truth she does a brilliant job of it i think mm-hmm. uh, but well, i love it i love it when it first arrives when he gets past the, the initial gang of blokes on the dock yeah. and he's walking through the village as it were and uh, you know, literally every window there's someone sticking their head out watching him <laughs> people are coming out the doors just standing on the doorstep watching him no one's saying a word to him and that, just that, that sense of community is like there's somebody who shouldn't be here is here and well, all, or, or, yeah. or the man he's arrived everyone have a look at him they're all waiting to have a look at him yeah I just love it I think it's a great great opening and the weird stuff in the pub in the evening when they're oh, all yeah. sort of singing about the landlord's daughter and it's, it seems to start innocently enough but then it gets very kind of bawdy and, and like what the hell is going on here well, and she it, stood yeah. there like as they're singing this song and they're all jo- and they're all kind of joining in as well with her grinning all the way yeah <laughs> but if you're looking for you know if you're looking for like you know story components i mean lord samurai you know makes no bones about it my great grandfather came here with a scientific theory and realized expediency you know in terms of you know if i get them to believe in the old ways mm. they're going to be more productive and he makes no bones about it and, and over time you know they come to actually believe that religion but again, you know, there's no reason why the court has to always be secretive, or why why the, why the answer isn't in the open. And they oh, say, yeah. you know, this, you know, we believe these things. You know, we we don't go around murdering people every day. What what are we doing that's wrong? We just happen to be worshiping this black star or something. And again, it's inter- it'd be interesting to see how players would react to that and their investigators. It's, it's interesting. I have actually run a scenario that's very much like that. One thing that you know, I particularly like about The Wicker Man is the fact that while the, the Islanders you know, are, are very much a malevolent presence ultimately, that they are nothing but friendly and decent and open you know, mm. in their conversation to Howie. And I did actually run a Call of Cthulhu scenario that's very much along those lines where you know, I was trying to make the cultists as sympathetic as possible. They were doing some fairly horrific things but they weren't actually hurting anyone else it was just themselves even then you know the players were just evil evil yeah must stop but as law enforcers then you know in a wicker man who do you arrest because you haven't got really any evidence yet there's this girl that's missing but there's no evidence of a crime everybody seems to be implicated and involved there's kind of a standing in the way of an investigation you know which is a crime in itself but and lying to police officers but Aside from that, you know, it seems like everybody's involved. You can't just arrest everybody. Well, that, that, then that therein is the crux of the issues. Yeah. Is why you know he's he can't act. Although he, he and that's his sense of his inner frustration. You want one is his religion is being confronted, his belief system is being confronted, and and uh, and as in terms of his tools of authority, he can go around and lord it around and threaten people, but he can't do anything because he can't find any evidence you know he tries to find the evidence of a body or or whatever but is again rebuffed at every point so he had technically nothing he can do other than to go back as he says go back to my superior and say well i think the whole island's in on it and we need to but as a game how do we do this so i mean you're going around you're not really finding clues as evidence very much it's more 
in the interaction. Well, it's all you, subjective you clues, isn't I mean, it? You know, yeah. I mean, he, he is getting clues. He's getting clues as to what the nature of the island is, what the belief is, and so on. He's not. I mean, that, that's that's what's interesting about this. He's not getting clues about the investigation he thinks he's following, because uh, he, he doesn't realise it at the time. But his entire premise there is flawed. But on the other hand, he is getting clues that he doesn't necessarily know how to contextualise. Is he gaining evidence? Against them, not but really. I think I think you miss. I think you. I think you've almost coming up from a slightly wrong angle. Look at it this way: if Sergeant Harry is a player character, mm. think about his backstory, yeah, and how that is going to impact and react to the play and the setting and the people he's rea- he's meeting in the yeah. scenario. I mean, presumably, you know, the player playing Harry is role playing him in really well, and he's really playing off that backstory in terms of his religion and morals and outview. Yeah, and you uh, as a keeper are there trying to put challenges And you're in the way challenging that at every yeah. point. Mm. It, you, what you're uh, ho- hopefully doing is building this wonderful drama for role-playing. Actually, you know, you have a great session of this kind of interaction that actually, yeah, the, the investigation is almost secondary to kind of the role-play and the interaction and the personalisation that's going on. And then, you know, you, you thread the plot through it and, you know, draw them out the other side to, you know, other events or so on. Going back a couple of episodes, when we were talking about uh, the System Matters episode, and you, you were trying to define what narrativist play was. I mean, this is narrativist play. This is, you know, I yeah. want to play a character who's, you know, thematic background, who's, you know, is all about testing his faith, is, is about trying to impose his faith on the community and about, you know, the community kicking back. And so everything that you're doing as a GM in that game is there to, to challenge that theme. Because even when he says to Lord Summerisle, you know, you're a pagan. And he says, no, I'm not a pagan. A heathen, maybe, but not an unenlightened one. I think there's certain aspects in The Wicker Man that are almost dreamlike. The scene mm. when he leaves a pub to find them, the orgy on the oh, green. Yeah. He's yeah. actually filmed in a gauze lens effect. No, I did very uh, much wonder last night when I was and, watching and it. Was almost, is, dream? you know, is he dreaming yeah. this? Or, you know, and, 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 and there's a few other scenes a little bit like that, which makes me think of the dreamlands, obviously. And, and I kind of think of, you know, that kind of, you know, an isolated community, different, different beliefs, practices. We all go to kind mm. of Innsmouth as the obvious choice. But you could do that in the dreamlands quite successfully as well. A kind of a dreamlands community with a, a different outlook to everyone else and you know perceptions and, and all that kind of thing well, and, and and also the fact that you know if you were as a dreamer are going there from the modern world and taking your preconceptions about what is real about what is moral yeah that's going to be a massive culture shock admittedly the the time scale's a bit out but if you were able to put a player character into somewhere like sarnath that's somewhere where it did have a very different belief system to the um, to the rest of the the area around it also, as keeper, I can imagine running some like like when the uh, Howie the policeman goes out for a, a walk in the night and he encounters all those people cavorting in the graveyard or wherever it is. I could almost run that and have it in the back of my mind as keeper. This could be a dream or it could be real, just depending how it plays out. So if he yeah. just kind of goes back to his room and doesn't really involve himself with them, you know, it, it's could be ambiguous as well is was it a dream or well uh, particularly once you're playing with delusions and bouts of insanity yeah yeah but yeah. was there anything in there to drive him insane i mean obviously that last bit <laughs> that's yeah. pretty crazy well i mean he, he's got to the island he's, he's starting to realize that the people around aren't christians that they might be pagans then he's got that that scene you know where he's you know seen the the rather lewd behavior in the tavern 
obviously, you know, in Call of Cthulhu terms, that's probably not five points of sand, but it seems to be enough to sort of disconnect him slightly, that everything that he's believed is proper and right and normal about the world, everything that underpins his everyday existence, the rule of law, the rule of Christianity, the, the fact that he is representative of what the world is, and he is suddenly in a place where none of that applies anymore. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I can see that causing you know, some kind of fugue state. With a character with that particular backstory encountering that particular situation it's yeah. not you know you just do a parallel okay let's not pretend it's a wicker man let's just pretend it is the Innsmouth community and he's learning about the wider realities of the cosmos it's exactly the same thing just different information yeah um you would say a sanity role for that but i think a valid sanity role would be for this in this point maybe not as you say a huge loss but certainly, you know, a point loss or something. And maybe it, because it, it is effectively questioning his truth of reality. Another aspect of the, the, the Wicker Man that I think is very interesting from a Call of Cthulhu point of view is the fact that human sacrifice in this is genuinely shocking. It is a stirring, visceral, horrible thing. In most Call of Cthulhu games I've played... Where there have been elements of, of human sacrifices, yeah, okay, the cultists have got, you know, 1d6 locals and they're planning on sacrificing them later and so on. You don't bother giving the NPCs names. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's cultists, of course, they sacrifice people. And there, there's no impact. I, how do we bring the terror of human sacrifice back into our games? I think what the Wicked demonstrates is that they're resorting to this, what you would see as the ultimate sacrifice, driven by circumstances in in the wicked tree as well it's the same situation they aren't doing this every year they're driven to it because of dire circumstances of the community so that's one is that it shouldn't happen every week it's not it doesn't happen every thursday night but equally it's understanding that it's the very nature of sacrifice even understand the word sacrifice it has to be sacrificing something of value and importance and to just give it to you know nameless npcs perhaps detracts the value and importance of it and to, so making sacrifices meaningful characters in their own right ideally known by the pcs or having interaction with them at some point makes that much more powerful and you know and real to the you know the players in that sense i think something that plays on the what we talked about in the previous episode about folk horror here is is what brings the real horror to me in the in the sacrifice scene is that this isn't a group of crazed people covered in blood and robes with knives running around chasing him, which if that was in the film, you kind of go, oh yeah, they want to kill him. This is a group of just normal villagers, parents with children and, and just regular looking people. Because there's that disconnect there. These are regular people and he, he tries to appeal to their, their sense of humanity and just general sort of good nature. We don't expect those people to be doing this thing. That is the, you know, going back to a conversation that we've had previously, it's that kind of the the in the dark side to humanity, you know, the inner monster. It's that kind of, you know, well, whilst I, you know, I appreciate, I understand and I feel that, you know, I feel quite guilty and, and wrong that you're going to, we're going to have to burn you alive in this wicker man. However, I've got to feed my family. I've, I've got nothing to live on. I've been, and, and the Lord, he knows everything. And, and he's telling me that if we burn you, we're all going to have a prosperous year. We got, all our worries are going to melt away. It's all going to be fine. And so I've kind yeah. of, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm being helped to justify it. And that is and completely understandable. I mean, you know, anyone who commits petty crime, anyone who, <laughs> oh gosh, at the risk of sounding preachy, I mean, if you buy stuff that's made in sweatshops, you know, you're, you're profiting from human suffering. And you learn how to compartmentalise that. You learn how to live with it. I think it's the same basic psychological mechanism as we're seeing here. The villagers aren't doing this out of evil. They're doing it because they have managed to rationalise and, and tell them themselves this is the right thing to do. And I think another thing that makes the the sacrifice and the wicked man so shocking is the method of the sacrifice. Because, you know, I mean, what you were talking about a moment ago, Paul, with, you know, cultists running around with, with daggers, if Howie had been sacrificed in the end by being put on an altar and stabbed, I mean, that's something we've seen so many times before that we're inured to it. If I think about a human sacrifice in the Call of Cthulhu game, I am just lazily mentally picturing a robed cultist with a knife, uh, someone tied to an altar, stab, stab, stab. Maybe a bit of chanting. It kind of almost dovetails with what you just said about the is this is normal people committing this. So the very act of sacrificing, putting him into a casket, standing away from it while a torch is at the bottom, no one's actually killing him. They're just setting the fire. Mm. You know, in in yeah. the sense, uh, they can justify it, how it becomes a more palatable act almost because there isn't any blood, there isn't a knife going in. It's actually off camera to them. And it's almost like bonfire night. Like fifth well, of November, yeah, it here. is. You know, Bonfire the, night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, but it's you are the the guy on the fire. And it's just occurred to me there's a parallel to this in in Lovecraftian cinema. Have any of you seen the film Cthulhu, uh, made about ten years ago? Yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah. There's a very similar thing where human sacrifices are put in basically large lobster pots and put on the beach, and when yes. the tide comes, and they're drowned. Admittedly, oh. from a different genre, but there is a line from Collateral which springs to mind there. See, I shot him, but the bullets in the fall killed him. So, if you've never seen The Wicker Man, and you've listened to all of this, and you still haven't watched it yet, <laughs> go and watch it. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free, and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, the time has come once again to thank each and every one of you who have backed us via Patreon. The money you send us makes all this possible. It pays for all our running costs uh, and it fuels the podcast. So thank you. And we have a bunch of new people to thank as well. Yes, starting at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Ben Ferguson. Indeed. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you very much, Ben. And also our thanks go out to Steve Payne. So thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And next, thank you to Klaus van der Mulen. Thank you very much, Klaus. Indeed, thank you, Klaus. And also thanks to Matthew Stewart. Indeed, thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. And moving up to the $3 level now, in more ways than one, actually, considering our patron here has moved from $1 to $3. Uh, thanks go out again to Bjorn Mashmer. So thank you very much, Bjorn. Yes, thank you, Bjorn, and cheers. Thank you, Bjorn. Cheers. Cheers. And also at the $3 level, thank you and cheers to William Mize. Cheers, William. Cheers, William, and see you soon on Into the Darkness. And now we have come to our more dreadful task. That is the best word you used to describe this bit for a while. Dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. It's great. (laughs) For those of you who are mercifully unaware, this is the point of the podcast where we thank those... 
wonderful and and folly-filled people who have backed us at the $5 level, and we thank them in a very special way. Special way. We're the way of singing. It's not song. It's audio torture. Well, it's a loose term. It's musical. <laughs> well, it's kind of musical. So anyway, a, uh, a big thanks to the generosity of Adrian Kelly. Thank you very much, Adrian. Yes, thank you, Adrian. Brace yourself. We thank you for backing the podcast. 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 We thank Adrian Kelly. Adrian Kelly. Adrian Kelly. Adrian Kelly. And our next victim today. Many thanks go out to Norman Beresford. Thank you very much, Norman. Many thanks to you, Norman. Thank you, Norman. 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 Norman Beresford. Norman Beresford. Thank you. Thank you. I understand out there in that big wide world, the big wide web, people have been talking about us. The big scary world. Yeah. Well, in particular, people have been talking on iTunes, which we always like. People can talk on that thing? I thought you just got music from it. (laughs) Let me introduce you to this concept called podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it'll never catch on. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we have a couple of new iTunes reviews. The first from Spandau Billet which I think is a fantastic username. It's brief and to the point. Tread softly. Insanely funny, but mostly insane. I think I resemble that remark. I think we can all be proud of that. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And we have a second review from Gareth of Torchlight Candles, who I think we both met at Dragon Meat, Matt. Yes, I believe we did. In fact, he even mentions that in the review. And the review goes... Cthulhu for Targan! Always a good way to start a review, really, isn't it? Or any statement. <laughs> I was introduced to this podcast at Dragon Meat 2017, and ever since then I've been listening to it whenever I can. The show has a very light-hearted and friendly atmosphere, just like being with a group of friends. I've been listening to it at work and must seem crazy to everyone around me, because every now and then I just laugh at some witty joke. Hang on, we have jokes. You mean it's not normal just to sit there in in company, you know, quietly, and every now and then burst into laughter? Well, I do that at my own work, but normally at the... Yeah, same here. Well, it's all those accounts, Matt. They are hilarious, I'm sure. Oh, some of them really are, yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. I've got a story for you after after we finish recording about that. (laughs) Well, I'll look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working my way through the podcast, and the episodes on what makes a good investigative game have really given me some great ideas for my first go at DMing a game of Call of Cthulhu. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much to both of you. And if anyone else feels moved to give us a review on iTunes, we would be extremely grateful. And we just had some feedback on our second episode about the mythos as religion from Justin Lowmaster on Google+. He says, I'm a Christian and wasn't offended by anything in the show. I think you did a fine job of discussing such forbidden topics as religion and politics. Well, that's kind of reassuring. I was just going to say, thank fuck for that. (laughs) After hearing what of my rant you kept in there, I was a bit worried for a bit. 
I might have edited it, you know, lightly, but... <laughs> well, took a few of the hell satans out. <laughs> he continues, I've seen RPGs and gods looked at from the perspective of an atheist, and from that of other perspectives, and something I noticed when they were setting up religions in a fantasy setting. The atheist was looking more at why the priests, etc., would organise things in a certain way, whereas people with beliefs looked at it as more as why did the deity choose to make things in a certain way. And I think that's actually quite an interesting point. Um, well, it is, because as the author of the scenario, you're having to decide, are these gods actually real, in which case they're having the influence, or are the gods a fiction, in which case the priests are having the influence on the followers and i guess as an atheist you would tend to think well it's the priests that are doing it and also i think the mythos is a bit of a gray area in that respect anyway Mm. because you know that the gods actually do exist in this fiction but at the same time they don't really care about the followers and they probably haven't really created anything so they're these indifferent entities it's interesting in that respect because from a faith point of view there's probably no difference then between being a priest of a mythos religion and being the priest of a religion in an atheistic world because you're still pretty much praying out there to the darkness yes And in the real world, various religions ostensibly worship the same deity, but they take quite different approaches to it. So I guess we could say the priests are dictating how they worship that deity and what they practice. Kind of makes me want to do a Cthulhu scenario now where they uh, we have a bunch of cultists worshipping a fictional deity. One that you think as a player, oh, this god's going to come up at the end of the scenario and smite us. No, it doesn't, because it doesn't exist. Do sit down, Sergeant. Socks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. To wrap everything up, we talked before about how The Wicker Man was a film that really shouldn't have worked for so many reasons and shouldn't have survived. But obviously it has. Why do we think that it has become such an enduring favourite? Because sometimes it's really good to see the good guys lose. I think some great performances in there. I, mean, I was really blown away with it last night. That It is a film from 1973. I don't know what the budget was like, but... I think um, the performance yeah, No, I, I kind of imagine the budget wasn't that great, but it doesn't really matter because they made such good use of the locations and great cast, really good performances. It's a great work, really. I think it's a, a horror film that isn't really a horror film. I mean, there are horrific elements to it. It is fundamentally a drama about faith, about the conflicts of faith. It goes to places that I I don't think I've ever seen another film do. And it's so idiosyncratic in its portrayal, so rich in detail. It is unlike anything else that's out there. Yeah, I think Scott's pretty much said everything I was about to say. You know, I agree completely with Scott on this. I think it's a fantastic film. I think it's genuinely intriguing. It's rewatchable. I'm always finding new nuances in the lines or the delivery of the characters and and the look of the thing. And I love that it, it subverts the beliefs of the regular audience. I just think it's great. I think it's a film that you can watch and watch again. And it's, and it's very inspiring for you know stories and, and, and whatnot. So go and watch it. So with that, summers are coming in. <laughs> indeed. And, and we're well, heading off. We are indeed. There so, might be just three of us next time. 
<laughs> the fourth might have been put in a wicker man we don't. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Murray, don't you you are gonna let me out though, aren't you now? Mike, and it is time joke. for your appointment with the wicker man. Oh god, Jesus Christ, no <laughs> Or I should say uh, my favourite line is right now. No, no, I doubt it, singers, you're raving mad. <laughs> uh, well let's leave it there. It's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. Farewell from me. And a tally ho from me. Summer is a coming in. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah!